This is Tailgate Till May. I'm your host, Stephen Gorgie, and I'm back for another episode. It's Selection Sunday. It's here. We made it. This is what us college basketball nuts look forward to all season long. So let's jump right into things today. No time for any cute introductions where you can find me leaving us reviews. Let's talk about the college basketball action because it's Selection Sunday and we're ready to go. And we're going to start off at the very top of the bracket with the one seeds. So personally, I thought these number one seeds, the four number one seeds that were named, were the exactly the right one seeds. I could quibble a little bit with the order, but the combination of Alabama, Houston, Kansas, and Purdue, I thought those were the four clear-cut number one seeds. I thought that going into the day. I don't think anything that happened today, Houston's loss without Marcus, Marcus Sasser, would have changed that. Uh, so I was perfectly fine, and I thought these were the right for number one seeds. Alabama was the top number one overall seed. And I agreed with that as well. I, you know, for the past couple of weeks, I've been talking about, in my mind, I had felt like it had been more of a Houston-Kansas battle. But looking at it yesterday, looking at it this morning, I kind of came to the con- same conclusion that the committee did, which is when you combine all the various metrics, when you combine the predictive metrics, when you combine the result-based metrics. When you look at the performance versus quad one and two teams, Alabama had the best mix of everything and therefore deserved the top overall seed, which is what they got. Now, probably the most controversial thing when it came to the one seeds was Houston getting the number two seed over Kansas, and that was big because it kept Kansas out of the Kansas City Regional It sent them out west to the Las Vegas Regional, where they're paired up with a number two seed, UCLA. UCLA clearly has the geography advantage in that region. So that was kind of a big uh, difference there for Kansas being able to play in Kansas City or if they were to make the Midwest Regional versus now having to go to Vegas. So Houston got that second, uh, second number one seed, and Chris Reynolds was asked about it, the selection committee chair, he was asked about it on the selection show. And what he referenced was Houston's record in quad one and two games. He said, you know, that Houston has a 15 and two record in quad one and two games. Kansas has a 21 and seven record. Now, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was very telling the way he kind of combined those quad one and two games, those quad one and two records, because if you break it out a little bit more, they, they kind of stand in stark contrast because Houston is seven and two in quad one games and eight and zero in quad two games to make that 15 and two record. Kansas, however, is 17 and seven in quad one games. So 24 of the 34 games they played this year were quad one games and four and O against quad two games. Now to me, there is a rather large difference between a quad one game and a quad two game, but it seems like the committee for whatever reason, or based on what Chris Reynolds said, they're kind of viewing it. Those two games together as those are kind of the two high quality quadrants and they're viewing them together. I think there's a pretty big distinction. I think that your quad one record 
is much more telling than your quad two record, especially when you're looking at the very top of the the country when you're going for those, you know, those little distinctions between a number one seed that's the number one overall seed, number two overall seed, number three overall seed, number three overall team in the country. I, th- I think there's a pretty big difference there. And to me, Kansas being 17 and seven in quad one games speaks volumes. I mean, if you are playing that large of a percentage of your schedule against quad one competition, it's very different night in and night out to play teams of that level than to play nine on the year. And it's not necessarily Houston's fault, but I think it's unfair to group those two games, those quad one and quad two games together and say, well, Houston's 15 and two and quad one and two and kind of ignore that Kansas played 24 of their 34 games against quad one competition. They went 17 and seven in those games. They have more quad wins than anybody else in the country. But what this told me that the committee is looking at is they're grouping those quad one and two games together. And I, it seems like they are less concerned about how many quad one games you played than your winning percentage in those quad one games, which I can understand because again, it's not Houston's fault. They don't play in the big 12 yet. If they, if this was next year, we'd have a much better idea of where Kansas stands directly in comparison to Kansas because they would have played, they would have played very similar conference schedules, but unfortunately we don't. So I I understand the point that you can only take, you know, what you can only evaluate a team on the games that they've played. However, I do think a team does deserve some sort of advantage for playing 24 quad one games, having more quad one wins than anybody in the country and going 17 and seven in those games. I mean, just on a winning percentage basis, that's still a 71% winning percentage in quad one games. There are plenty of teams out there that would love to have a 70% winning percentage in quad one games. I mean, I'll just take, pick an example here, UConn. UConn went seven and six in quad one games, and UConn ends up with the number 13 overall seed uh, that would make that, that makes them a four seed in the bracket. UConn would love to have that record. And that's a team that has been widely lauded. So I think we need to stop and just appreciate 70% winning percentage in 24 quad one games is quite an accomplishment. And I think that should have put Kansas over the top in comparison to Houston, but it didn't. And uh, the committee's reasoning was the combination of quad one and two games. Now, getting to the bubble, I personally have a hard time ever getting too worked up about the bubble because all these teams are flawed. It's a big tournament. 68 is a large tournament. I know we might be expanding in the future, but all of these teams have have flaws. All these teams on the bubble have had opportunities and all of these teams have missed opportunities in some way, in some ways, or otherwise they wouldn't be in this conversation. They wouldn't be on the bubble. So I have a hard time getting too worked up about a team missing out. Texas A&M was the big example last year. Everybody was worked up about, I, I have a very hard time getting too worked up about it, but your last four in were Mississippi state, Pitt, Arizona state and Nevada. 
Like your first four out were Oklahoma State, Rutgers, North Carolina, and Clemson. Now, if I if there was one team on that list that I question what put them in, it would be Arizona State. Arizona State, the second to last team in, they were twenty two and twelve. And when you look at their resume, none of it is particularly impressive. They had a net of sixty six. Their result-based metrics were 50. They were 53rd in KPI, 47th in strength of record. So those are not predictive. Those are the results-based metrics. And then in the predictive metrics, your Ken Palms of the world, your Sagarins, BPI, they were uh, 75 in BPI, 68 in Ken Palm, and 67 in Sagarin. So all of these metrics, whether result-based or predictive, not very impressive. When you look at how they performed, you know, against the various quadrants, five and six against quad one, four and five against quad two, uh, it's it's good. That's good. They're right around 500 there, nine and 11. So you can't knock that too much. And they had one bad quad four loss. I think the thing they hung their hat on is that they were seven and six on the road and they got a big road win against Arizona. Now, the first team out, Oklahoma State, I think across the board, they appear to be more impressive. They have a few more losses, 18 and 15 overall, but their net's 43 compared to 66 for Arizona. Their uh, result-based metrics compare favorably, three spots ahead of ASU in KPI, three spots ahead in strength of record. And in the predictive metrics, which also includes net, they are unbelievably far ahead. I already said net 43 versus ASU 66, but a BPI of 33 versus ASU 75, a Ken Palm ranking of 38 compared to 68 for ASU, a Sagarin ranking of 44 compared to 67 for ASU. So below Oklahoma State blows Arizona State away in the predictive metrics. Then you kind of get down to the quadrants here and Oklahoma State was 6-12 and 12 in quad one games. They played in the Big 12, so they played a ton of quad one games. They were 4-2 and two in quad one and two. That makes them 10-12 and 12 against quad one and two compared to 9-11 and 11 against quad one and two. Very, very similar records. And like the committee chair told us about the very top of the bracket, they were comparing quad one and two. So you would think they would be doing something similar here. However, when asked what Oklahoma State did, why Oklahoma State did not make it in, what Chris Reynolds said was that they had 18 opportunities in quad one and only won six games. So it really does seem like the committee was not valuing this year, playing a tough schedule and, you know, play, playing a really tough schedule and coming up with some wins against that tough schedule. They wanted teams to play a tough schedule and dominate that tough schedule. Uh, to me, 6-12 and 12 in Quad 1 games, like, you should get credit for playing 18 Quad 1 games and coming up with six wins. Yes, like, I think if they won two more games and they were 8-10 and 10 in Quad 1 games, that's a no-brainer. And that's why I don't cry too much for Oklahoma State because they had opportunities. They also, uh, Chris Reynolds also mentioned that Oklahoma State didn't take advantage of some non-conference opportunities. And again, that's a fair point, a point well taken. But when I look at those two resumes, when I compare Oklahoma State to Arizona State, I just see Oklahoma State as having a better resume 
across the board, and, and it confuses me why Arizona, why Oklahoma State is almost being punished for playing such a tough schedule in the Big Twelve. And I, I do I did want to correct one thing. I misspoke. I said I misspoke. I said Oklahoma State would be ten and twelve against Quad One and Two. They'd actually be ten and fourteen, which is a you know slightly worse winning percentage compared to what Arizona State put up in their 20 quad one and two games where they went nine and 11. But I want to continue this conversation about how the committee seems to be grouping quad one and two games together as if they're both kind of both very important quality games. And I think quad two games, they can be against quality teams, but not always. And just for reference, a quad one game is any game against a team in the top 50 of the net on a neutral court a team in the top 30 at home or a team on the top in the top 75 on the road. A quad two game is a neutral site game against any team ranked between 51 and 100, a home game against any team ranked number 31 to 75, and a, a road game against a team ranked number 76 to 135. Now, I, let's take an example here. Let's look at the actual net rankings and let's find a quad two team. A quad two team that jumps out to me, let's see, number 90 here, a quad two uh, a quad two team, if you were to play them on the road, would be Wake Forest. Or even if you were put to play them on a neutral site, that would be Wake Forest. Um, they are the number 90 team in, in the net that meets the criteria of uh, teams number 51 to 100 on a neutral site. That is a team in the ACC that did not make the tournament, is nowhere, was nowhere close to necessarily making the tournament, was not first four out, was not on any next four out list leading up uh, per bracketologist. That was a not a tournament team. Now let's take another team. Let's stick in the ACC here, and let's look for a quad one ACC team. So, okay, Miami, the number 35 team in the net. If you played Miami on a neutral court, they are a top 50 team, that would be a quad one game. Miami is in the tournament. Miami is the is a number five seed in the tournament, ostensibly making them one of the top 20 teams in the country. Uh, I think there's a pretty big difference between Miami and between Wake Forest. So why should quad one and two games be grouped together if that's the difference between a quad one and two team? To me, what is most important is how did you perform against teams at the highest of the highest quality? Because in the tournament, you will be playing teams of the highest quality. I want to know how you can perform against the best of the best. And that's why I have this problem with gro the grouping of quad one and two games together. But nevertheless, I, I think Oklahoma State would have had a strong case. I personally would have ranked Oklahoma State ahead of Arizona State, but I don't cry for Arizona or for Oklahoma State because they had their chances. They lost to Southern Illinois at home in the second game of the year. They lost to UCF on a neutral court. They lost to Virginia Tech on a neutral court. They had Kansas, a chance to beat Kansas. They lost to Kansas by two on the road. If they could have got that win, they would 100% be in the tournament. If they could have won any two other Big 12 games, they would have been in the tournament. All of these teams that are on the cut line, whether they get in or they don't, they're all flawed. They all had opportunities, and they all left their fate 
in the hands of humans, the selection committee. So sometimes, you know, people are, are going to disagree on which team should get in, should get in, and which team shouldn't. And that is the risk you take when you leave yourself on the bubble. So I have a very hard time getting worked up about it. I personally would rank Oklahoma State ahead of Arizona State, but I understand that uh, the selection committee disagreed, and, and I'm not going to cry for Oklahoma State about it because they missed opportunities that would have made it a no-brainer. So that's kind of my bubble thoughts. Don't get too worked about the, about the bubble in general. Now, I was kind of thinking as this Chris Reynolds interview was going on about my general seeding thoughts and what are the things that I would have asked Chris Reynolds. And I think the number one thing I would have loved to ask Chris Reynolds was what he saw, what the committee saw, that separated Indiana from the glut of other Big Ten teams that it was so closely grouped with all year. Now, if you don't know, and if you've been listening to this podcast, I'm sure you do because I've been talking about it a lot, Indiana and Northwestern finished tied for second in the Big Ten at 12-8. and Right behind them was a group of teams with 11 wins that included Michigan State, Maryland, Illinois, Iowa, and Michigan. That's uh, five teams right behind Indiana and Northwestern, all with 11 wins. Michigan State 11 and 8 because they had one game canceled, and the rest of the teams 11 and 9 in conference play. All of these teams were viewed as very similar throughout the year. Indiana got a number four seed, Northwestern a seven seed, Michigan State a seven seed, Maryland an eight seed, Iowa an eight seed, Illinois a nine seed. Penn State finished 10 and 10 in the conference, made it to the Big Ten championship game, a 10 seed. I see personally very little difference between Indiana and those other six Big Ten teams that were seated between 7 and 10. I felt like Indiana was right where there with those teams all year. I felt like this league was Purdue and everybody else. The committee, the way they seated it, seems to feel like it was Purdue, step down Indiana, step down everybody else. So that would be one of the things I would ask Chris Reynolds is what separated Indiana from those other six Big Ten teams that were seeded 7 through 10? Because if you look at the metrics, if you look at the net rankings, I mean, Indiana's 30, Maryland's 31, Michigan State's 33, Illinois's 34, Iowa's 39, Northwestern's 41. I mean, there's some little things here and there that you could say, you know, separate them, but like they're six and nine in quad one games. Michigan's five and nine in quad one games, but eight and two in quad two games versus Indiana's six and two in quad two games. It's like, to me, there is not enough there to say Indiana is clearly better. I mean, you look at quad one games. Again, I think quad one games are of the utmost important, utmost importance. I'm less, I'm not as huge on road games, meaning like being a huge differentiator, but uh, the committee seems to be at times. So let's look at Northwestern. Seven and six in quad one games versus Indiana's six and nine. Seven and four on the road versus Indiana's five and seven. Now, maybe the reason is that Northwestern is, uh, was seated uh, significantly lower than Indiana is that they were four and five in quad two games. Indiana six and two, and we've been talking about how the committee likes to group quad and one two games together. So that would make Indiana 12 and 11 in quad one and two games 
versus uh, 11 and 11 for Northwestern in quad one and two games with Northwestern taking five quad two losses. Maybe that's the difference, but that's a question I would really like to ask and get an understanding of is why Indiana was viewed as significantly better than that group of Big Ten teams that they were battling with all year long because Indiana lost to a lot of those teams. They lost to Iowa. They lost to Northwestern. They lost to Penn State. They lost to Maryland. They lost to Northwestern again. They lost to Michigan State. They lost to Iowa again. I personally don't view Indiana as anywhere close to head and shoulders above those teams, but the committee clearly did. So that is one thing I I would have really liked to ask. Another thing I would have liked to ask about is how Texas A&M finished with a number seven seed. Texas A&M, a team that finished second in the SEC, beat the number one overall seed Alabama in the last game of the regular season, had a net of 19, made it to the SEC championship, was seven and six against quad one teams, uh, had a couple quad four losses. So I would have really liked to understand from the committee What was it about this Texas A&M resume that held them back? Now, I know Texas A&M had far from the strongest strength of schedule, so maybe it was that. Maybe that's what held Texas A&M back. Uh, It's a good, you know, it's a a good thought. It's a good presumption, but uh, we can't be sure. We got to, I would really love to find out because they had a, Net strength of schedule of number 56, but a non-conference strength of schedule of 250. One of those teams, who they did lose to, they played at Memphis. That's a pretty good non-conference game. That's a tournament team that they lost to. Uh, They played Boise State on a neutral court, another tournament team uh, who they lost to. And then continuing on, Colorado is a quad two game. Uh, that they lost. So maybe it was their performance just outside of conference play, which look, I I get that, but I would like to, I would love to know because in non-conference play, they were eight and five, including their two Q4 losses to Murray State and Wofford. Uh, Bad losses, no doubt about it. So if that was the reason, I would love to know it, but that's a big question for me because they finished the season so strong. They were so strong in conference play. Their net was strong. They have a gr- outstanding win, uh, as good a, of a win as any team can have uh, against Alabama. The only way it, the win could have been better is if they beat them on the road as the number one overall seed. So I, I really want to understand from the committee how Texas A&M ended up as a seventh seed, and if it was because of their non-conference play. And if it was because of their non-conference play, I sincerely applaud that. We should be doing everything that we can in our power to emphasize the importance of non-conference play, to encourage teams to schedule strong out of conference, to, uh, to make those games in November and December meaningful. Because right now, There are so many people who only watch college basketball starting right now in March. And if we can make those games more meaningful, if the committee is incentivizing that, I think that is is nothing but a good thing. But a, a question that I would have loved to ask Chris Reynolds. My last thought when it comes to just the seating and the bubble and all the stuff that we usually talk about on Selection Sunday is I was very happy to see the Mountain West Conference get the respect it deserves and get four bids. This is a conference that, per Ken Palm, rated higher than the ACC this year. It was just behind the Mountain West. 
It was a very strong conference, and to get four bids was fantastic. San Diego State, a five seed. Utah State and Boise State, 10 seeds. Nevada, the last team in the bracket, the last at large, as an 11 seed. And uh, I think Utah State, talk about a team that I'm looking forward to watching on the big stage. Utah State, since February 12th, the number ninth ranked team, the number nine ranked team in T rank, the 11th best adjusted defensive efficiency in the country, seven and one in its last eight games, playing really good basketball and a team that I'm excited to watch and bet on in this tournament. So big shout out to the Mountain West. Super happy to see them get the respect they deserve. And a team like Nevada get the nod over a North Carolina, a team that uh, you know has the name brand, but did not have as good of a season as Utah State did or Nevada did. So I, I'm, I was extraordinarily happy to see the Mountain West get that respect. Okay, let's move on to looking at the actual bracket a little bit and making some projections, making some predictions here. I want to go through some of the teams I think got good draws and bad draws. So of the top 16 teams, the top one through four seeds, which team do I think got the best draw? Well, I think there's really only one clear answer here, and I think it's Alabama, the number one overall seed. I think uh, they play a 16 seed in the first round, winner of a play-in game, uh, Texas A&M Corporate Christie versus Southeast Missouri. We'll find out the winner of that later this week. I don't think it matters at all who it is. And then moving on to the second round, they have the winner of Maryland-West Virginia. An 8-9 game, any 8-9 game, the, the teams are going to be flawed. But I think if you look at some of the other 8-9s throughout the country or throughout this bracket, neither of these teams has like the super high-end potential that a team like Arkansas and Illinois have. You know, that those are two teams that had high expectations, haven't quite met those expectations, have a ton of talent on those teams, and you never know when that talent can shine through. And that's what Kansas is looking at in its second round game. So I'd rather have the winner of Maryland, West Virginia than that. Um, Iowa, Auburn is probably about the level of Maryland, West Virginia, maybe a slightly easier, but Memphis is an eight seed that I think is playing much better than an eight seed right now. They are per T rank per BartTorvik.com, the number eight team in the country since February 12th, uh, top 25 in both offensive and defensive defensive efficiency and a team that I would not want to face and definitely going to talk about that in a second. So I think all things considered that eight, nine matchup is not bad at all. Now, if you look at their four seed, it's Virginia. Virginia is a team that is just a flawed team. They're if you watch that ACC championship game, you saw how much they struggled to score. I also don't think they're the elite defense that they usually are. I think that is one of the better four C draws they could have possibly gotten. And then on the bottom side of the bracket, it is just filled with teams that do not play defense and do not bring focus to the table every night. I've been talking about it with Arizona, the two seed in this region all year long. Arizona wins the Pac-12 championship game, but that's because that's a game where they are locked in and focused. And UCLA has major major injury issues right now. It was a tight game. Arizona does come out on top with it. They come out on top, but Arizona needs to focus every night, and I don't trust them that they will bring that intensity every night, that they, will, that they can bring it defensively every night. Baylor, very much the same way, not with the focus. They're just not a good defensive team. 
And uh, that team doesn't scare me a whole lot. Like, I think they're, if you were trying to, to build a bracket to beat Alabama, you'd want teams that play intense physical defense and can make it a, a grind and a slog. And you might say, hey, that's Virginia. Virginia makes everything a grind. But the Virginia defense is not as good as it usually is, and they struggle to score to such a great extent that Alabama's a good defensive team, too. People forget that Alabama is actually a very good defensive team. So, yes, vintage Virginia would present that challenge, not this version of Virginia. And that bottom half of the bracket is teams that are they're not complete teams. So I love Alabama's draw here. I think it is the easiest draw of any of the... If I'm looking at who's got a great draw from those top uh, one through four seeds, the top 16 seeds in the country, I think Alabama has a great draw. Now, looking at some seeds below that, five through 16, who do I think has a good draw seeded five through 16? Well, I think it's Duke, the number five seed in the East. They have a very tough first round game against an experienced Oral Roberts team who has made noise in the tournament before. But if you look beyond that, you look at their second round game, they got Tennessee if they get through. Tennessee is a team that I've been talking about all year long that also is not a complete team, but it's because of their offense. That offense struggles, struggles, struggles. They go out to Missouri in the SEC tournament. It seems like they just drop games every other night. They never drop in the computer rankings. They're still number five. But it's a team that simply struggles to win games because it's a team that struggles to score. And I just cannot trust that in the NCAA tournament. Um, It's a team that I don't trust at all. And I think it's a great matchup for a Duke team that's playing very well. Now, if they were to advance and get to a Sweet 16, the number one seed in that bracket is Purdue, uh, and the, but that's a team in that in that Purdue team that I'm going to get to in just a second here because I think there's a chance that they don't make it past Memphis. So Duke could either be looking at a Purdue team that is very good, but certainly flawed as we've seen with their backcourt. They got young guards that don't always handle pressure defense well. And Memphis, I think, is tailor-made to push those guards, create turnovers, and potentially upset Purdue. So Duke could be looking at either a Purdue team that has flaws or a number eight seed at a Memphis team that is very talented. But, you know, anytime you can play an eight seed over a one seed, you're going to take it. So I like Duke's draw there. And that brings me to who has a bad draw. And, and I think Purdue is the one seed the top 16 seed that has a really bad draw I want to talk about because Memphis is tailor-made to do to take advantage of Purdue's weaknesses. We all know, we've seen, if you have watched Big Ten basketball this year, you have seen that Purdue struggles against the press. Matt Painter was super frustrated after the game today, after winning the Big Ten tournament title and blowing a big lead because they kept turning the ball over at the end of the game. They missed free throws at the end of the game, but he was really frustrated about the the turnovers. And uh, you know, you look at those stats; they only had seven turnovers. Uh, in total for the game, which is not a bad number at all, but they came when they were being pressed and they were making bad decisions when they were being pressed. And that is what we've seen all year long from Purdue is when they get beat, it's because uh, teams put a lot of pressure on that young backcourt of Fletcher Lawyer 
and Braden Smith, and they can't always handle it well, uh, despite both having very good seasons. Now, Memphis is a team that is going to be able to put pressure on on that Purdue backcourt. It's, you know, just what they do. They're 49th in the country in terms of defensive turnover percentage. They they force turnovers. That's what they've always done. They have a great lead guard in Kendrick Davis, who's a senior, um, who's the leader of that team. you got to have guards in March. It's cliche, but it's true. And I, I think that it's a really tough matchup for Purdue. I'm, I'm trying to find the odds right now. I think it's still locked on FanDuel. They have Sweet 16 odds. I'm looking at those Memphis Sweet 16 odds. Uh, I'm trying to see what I can get them at because if they can get... Okay, here it is. Plus 360, Memphis to make the Sweet 16. Now, look, Memphis has a tough first-round game. They have Florida Atlantic in the first round, not counting them out, but I think if they can get by that game, they have a fantastic shot against Purdue. I don't know if it's worth it. Plus 360. Got to think about that one because I'm not sure... Like, they might be... Today, Penn State was plus 260 on the money line to beat Purdue. I guess Memphis, the, the odds would be, wouldn't be quite as good. So it might be worth it. I want to do some math there. But that's a bet I'm looking at. Memphis plus 360 to make the Sweet 16 uh, because I, I really like that matchup with Purdue if they can get by their first round game against FAU. Another team whose draw I don't love at the top end of the bracket is the number two seed... The number two seed in the Midwest, Texas. And again, I think it's because their second round matchup is a tough one. I talked about Texas A&M potentially being underseeded or at least relative to, relative to how they've played in conference play and the back half of the year here. A&M, I mean, we've seen them at their best a couple games ago, end of the regular season. They beat Alabama. Now it was at home. Uh, Alabama handled them a little bit more easily or quite a bit more easily considering they they actually beat them today in the SEC championship game. But that's a team that's a a little bit underseeded. I think it's a relative to how they've been playing. It's of course a a big rivalry, more of a football rivalry, but still a rivalry nonetheless. And then on the flip side of that, Texas A&M plays Penn State in the first round. That's a Penn State team that has been playing fantastic uh, they are a great three-point shooting team, and in the tournament, you never know when a good three-point shooting team can get hot. They made this run to the Big Tw- uh, Big Ten Championship, where they beat Illinois Northwestern and Indiana in consecutive days. I think it's a that's a really that's probably the best matchup of the first round is Texas A&M and Penn State, and I think either of them has the potential to beat Texas because they're both battle-tested, really strong teams. So I think that's a tough second-round matchup for Texas. Not saying they can't get through it, but it's just a tough matchup for them. Uh, As far as the five seeds or below that have tough draws, one team I want to call out here is Miami. So Miami is the five seed in the Midwest. They have Drake in the first round. Drake is a team that I talked about a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was it was last week after they won the Missouri Valley. Uh, their best player, Drake's best player, Tucker DeVries, uh, son of head coach Darian DeVries, they, he is a guy, he could have played anywhere. 
He could have played anywhere in the country. He wanted to play for his dad. He's a fantastic player, and he's the kind of guy that can cause a lot of problems come tournament time. Drake's a team that takes care of the ball. They're a good defensive rebounding team. They're solid defensively, uh, good three-pointing team three-point shooting team, they are the kind of team that is like tailor-made in a lab to come out of the Missouri Valley and win a 12-5 game. So I think that's a really tough first-round matchup uh, for Miami there. So tough draw for the Hurricanes. Miami's also a team that doesn't play a ton of defense. They're in that Baylor-NC State category. They have some guards that can really score, but they don't play a ton of defense. Uh, Be on the upset alert there for Drake uh, to take down Miami, potentially. So I, I said, I think A&M, Penn State is probably the game of the first round. But what am I looking forward to as we look ahead, as we look to the second round and beyond? Well, a second round game that I think could be fantastic is Gonzaga, the number three seed in the West region, playing TCU. Uh, Gonzaga is a team, like happens most years, where we kind of think about them in November and December, And then we completely forget about them until the tournament starts. And this year, they did not have the November and December that we've come to expect from them, where they're top in the country. But you look at some of the metrics, and here they are once again as the number one most efficient offense in the country. They still have Drew Timmy as their big man, who has been there forever he's been through all the wars he's in his fourth year at Gonzaga he lost the national championship game to Baylor he was there last year when they lost a sweet 16 game as a number one seed to Arkansas he is one of the best players in the country one of the most talented players in the country one of the most experienced players in the country and uh, I'm excited to see what Gonzaga has to offer and they they destroyed St. Mary's a team that was kind of got more of the attention in the WCC for most of the year. They destroyed them in the WCC championship game, 77 to 51. So I'm really excited to get another look at Gonzaga now that it's tournament time again. And the team they go up against TCU is an extraordinarily interesting team in itself. I mean, Mike Miles, one of their guards, he's a guy that missed a bunch of time, but he's back and they seem to be a different team with him in the lineup. So I am curious to see what they can do if those two teams match up. Um, I think that could be, that's a game where, you know, the winner of that game could potentially make a run to the Elite Eight, make a run to the Final Four. UCLA is a two-seat at the very bottom of that bracket, and UCLA, I mean, look, they've they've been great, but... Now they have a big injury. They Jalen Clark is is out for the year. Um, I'm not sure the status of um, Adembona, their big man, big man, but he is he he got banged up. So you know I don't know the the health sad the health status of UCLA is questionable right now. They're a team that is fantastic defensively, good offensively, but you know they're not like blow your doors off in the way that we might expect a national championship contender to be. So, you know, I I could see the winner of TCU Gonzaga giving UCLA a game. So that's a matchup I'm excited to watch. 
um, kind of looking beyond the second round, or staying in the second round here, the winner of Arkansas-Illinois versus Kansas is a game I'm looking forward to because Arkansas and Illinois are both teams that had very high expectations to start the year and didn't quite live up to those expectations. You know, Arkansas was a team that, I mean, the talk after last year and they were coming off, I believe it was an Elite Eight, yeah, Elite Eight appearance where, you know, they beat Gonzaga, they gave Duke a good game in the Elite Eight, uh, and they brought in a bunch of McDonald's All-Americans, and it felt like, okay, this is the year Gonzaga, or Arkansas, rather, is going to put things all together, and they're going to potentially be a Final Four team, they're going to be a Top Ten team all year. Didn't quite work out that way, but they're still an uber-talented team with Nick Smith, who missed a bunch of time, now back. Um, Can they put it all together, and can they potentially pull off an upset against Kansas? On the flip side of that, Illinois, very similar story. They bring in some big-time transfers in Terrence Shannon and Matthew Meyer, but they just never seem to entirely be able to put it together all year long. You know, they showed flashes here and there, but it seemed like every time they showed a flash, they were just as quick to to then lose a game that was unexpected. And I think the biggest key with Illinois watching them this year is, like, will they actually get to the basket, or will they just settle for jumpers? They are not a great three-point shooting team. They're shooting just under 31% on the year. But as far as teams that take a lot of three-pointers out of their total field goal attempts, they take 42% of their shots are three-point attempts. That's 65th in the country. Uh, that is, you know, that that's who they are. That is who Illinois is, but I think they're much better when they get downhill and attack. So that's an interesting matchup to me of teams that have a ton of talent but have underachieved this year. But can the winner of that game put it together for one day and beat Kansas? Of course. This is the NCAA tournament. Of course they could put it together for a day. They could take those flashes of things we've seen all year, put it together, and pull off a huge upset. So that's uh, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to in the second round there. We'll talk about 216 and beyond once we get there. I, I want to end things tonight with a few gambling picks, a few early gambling picks. Uh, but what I want to go through first is a few of my gambling rules for March Madness. So these are rules that I've had to learn the hard way over the years. So number one, if you watch a lot of college basketball, just ignore what you saw early in the season. In November, December, January, yes, I said it should matter as far as seeding, and it should. It should matter in terms of seeding. It should matter in terms of who gets in. But when it comes to your gambling, when it comes to who you're picking, that might have been, that might as well have been years ago. Because what happened in November has very little indication, I believe, on how a team is playing right now and how a team might perform right now. These teams, especially in this era of teams that are, you know, heavy transfer portal, you got a bunch of new guys coming in every year, mixing with freshmen, mixing with guys who haven't played together before. There's so much gelling that a team has to do and learning its roles that I don't think there's a ton you can take from the early season, from November, December, sometimes even January, um, if a team really grows and develops and gels uh, they're just it's just such a different thing than early in the season. So, you know, try to ignore that. We we saw teams like Michigan last year 
not play well for large chunks of the season, but then they gel down the stretch. North Carolina goes to the national championship game. So try to ignore some of that early season stuff. Focus on what's, on, on what's happening now. One of the greatest tools for, to use for that is BartTorvik.com, where you can adjust the ranking time frame to look at you know only results since February 1st, since February 12th. Whatever you want it to be, you can look at. Uh, I've been using February 12th because that's exactly a month that's like a seven to nine game sample size. I'll also look at February 1st a little bit too. Uh, February 1st and on, that's a little bit of a bigger sample size, more like 10 games in some instances. Uh, so uh, that's, I think, one of the greatest tools you can use is looking at that and and trying to see, you know, what's changed? Is there a reason? Because if there's a reason a team is playing a lot better now than they were in December, then you, you don't even need to worry about what happened in December. Just focus on right now. Having said that, be wary of taking these teams that were super hot in conference tournaments, went on a big run, um, and then you think, like, okay, they're, they're feeling it. They're going to show up big in the NCAA tournament. There were so many years where I went to an ACC tournament. I saw a team play so well, and I'm like, yeah, they got this in the, in the NCAA tournament. They're going to go on a huge run. Be wary of that. Sometimes a team just has a good two-game stretch. That's why I like looking at February on uh, or February, middle of February on, whatever. Make sure you're making your sample larger than just two games, three games in a conference tournament. Uh, another um, lesson that I've had to learn the hard way, these all have, don't chase live lines on heavy favorites. If you know you have a team that you like, that's a top seed that gets down early and you're like, okay, there's no way they're not going to come back. This line's down to something reasonable. Don't don't chase that because I've had, we've had times, I've had times where, I'm chasing that, and it's like you are just chasing it based on your preconceived notion before the game. You got it. Much like these teams change and grow from November and December, sometimes in the tournament, you got to evaluate whether what you're seeing is something that can realistically turn around or if a team is just not on its game that day. If you feel like you're just going going based on a preconceived notion that you had where this team is better, surely they must come back. That's a mistake. Don't chase those live lines that way. Uh, then my last lesson here, balance matters. Balance really matters. And there are teams, if you look back at the past couple years, last year, Alabama, a six seed, but they were number 92 on adjusted defensive efficiency on Ken Palm. They lost to Notre Dame in the first round. Iowa, a five seed, but they were number 93 right behind Alabama in adjusted defensive efficiency. Lost to Richmond in the first round. Be careful with those teams. Balance matters, and teams that don't play defense can really struggle in the first round, especially against mid-majors that can shoot the three well. So be careful. Those are some of my gambling rules. Let's get to some of my gambling picks. I posted some early ones. There's The lines are flying here, left and right, up and down. But I, I got some numbers early that I really like, and I'm going to give them to you here. They're also posted on Twitter. So, first, Furman, plus 6.5 against Virginia. This is a strictly anti-Virginia pick. I shouldn't say strictly because Furman is a good program out of the SOCON um, that has been close to making the tournament a bunch of times. But it, this is, in large part, an anti-Virginia pick. Virginia is a team that is 
they just don't have that balance, but they it's because they can't score. I think their defense is overrated based more on reputation and slow pace than, you know, what than, than actually being any sort of elite defense. I like Furman in this game. Uh, Furman is, you know, a super efficient offense. They have a bunch of guys who aren't like 40% shooters, but they have a ton of guys who can shoot it that are 34% or 33%, 39%, 36%. They got a bunch of guys who can put it up. They're a super efficient offense. Um, I like I like Furman in this game. I, I It's kind of an anti-Virginia pick. I don't trust Virginia. I think six and a half is too many points for them to be giving. Give me Furman. Uh, my next pick is Arkansas minus one and a half versus Illinois. Now, this is a little bit more of a dangerous one because both these teams I think are very similar, but I am banking on the fact that, you know, now that Nick Smith is back for Arkansas, they will be able to put it all together. They were playing pretty well against Texas A&M in the quarterfinal round of the SEC tournament. They had a lead on them at halftime. They had a 38 to 25 lead at halftime of that game. They gave it back in the beginning of the first half there, uh, but it's still a team that I think has the potential. They have talent, and they have more of a reason. To me, there's more of a reason to believe with Nick Smith coming back and still kind of getting adjusted to being back in the lineup and playing as a team with these guys, with his teammates, that there's a reason to believe the flip can switch where Illinois, nothing has really changed for Illinois. This has been their team for a while, and I have less reason to believe that this is a a team that can flip a switch because there's nothing that's really changed for them in in a long time. So I'm thinking Arkansas minus one and a half here. Uh, My next pick, Auburn, minus one and a half against Iowa. And I mentioned it already, but Iowa is a team that is not balanced. Iowa is number 167 in defensive efficiency per Ken Palm. They do not have a great NCAA tournament track record at all. And I think that's in large part because their defense is always so much weaker than their offense. And if you think their defense has been weak in years past, let me just compare it for you because last year they were 80th. Uh, The year before that, they were 75th. The year before that, they were 97th. The year before that, 111th. This year, they're 167th. So they are even less efficient defensively than they have been in years past. And I think it will, I think it will really, um, I think it's really going to come back to hurt them this year. And now I'm looking at that and I'm looking at, uh, I guess I must have wrote down Iowa's defensive efficiency number wrong earlier so they were not number 93 last year when they when they lost in the first round to Richmond their defense was number 80 so just mark that correction down uh, they were they were number 80 last year but the point remains they were not a good defensive team last year and they are even worse than they were last year so i do not trust this defense at all uh, so give me Auburn. It's not that I love Auburn. It's that I don't trust this Iowa defense whatsoever. My next game, Louisiana plus 11 and a half against Tennessee. Again, Tennessee, a team that we I've bet on against a lot 
because they have stayed very high in the computer rankings. They're still number five in Ken Palm. They have the second most efficient defense, but their offense, they struggle to score. They have the 49th most efficient offense, but they consistently struggle to score. They struggle to win games. 11 and a half is far too many points for them to be giving up in an NCAA tournament game where everything gets tighter. They shoot 33% from three-point land as a team. Not very good at all. Uh, and everything gets tighter in these games. Everything becomes more difficult. I just think 11 and a half in a tournament game is far too many for Tennessee to be giving up. I'm going to go ahead and take Penn State plus two and a half versus Texas A&M. This is not because I don't like Texas A&M, but this is because of, of math, really. Penn State is a very good three-point shooting team. It makes them a little boom or bust, but they are a very good three-point shooting team. They shoot 38.5% as a team. That's ninth in the country, uh, This and they have been playing fantastic basketball over the last month. The, way, the resiliency they have shown in losing a big lead against Rutgers, uh, then rebounding, and, that, and this loss to Rutgers looked like it might end their season. Uh, and they and they were dominating that game. They were up 31-21 at halftime of that game. Seemed like they were going to run away with that one. Blew a lead late in the second half. And then what do they do? What they do next is they turn around and they absolutely rebound. They go and they beat Northwestern in overtime on the road. They have a big comeback against Maryland at home, and they win three straight games in the Big Ten tournament to go to the Big Ten championship game. Now, I cautioned against, you know, getting too into the team that has a big run. That's not why I'm into this team. I'm into this team because of the way they've been playing over the last month. I'm into this team because they shoot the three-pointer really well. I'm into this team because Jalen Pickett, their point guard is one of the most unique guards in the country at 6'4". He can do a lot of different things that, you know, your average guard can't do. He's a great shooter, but he can also back a, a smaller guard down in the paint. Um, and this team has just shown unbelievable resiliency. They take care of the basketball really well. They, they shoot the three-pointer really well. And I think it comes down to a matter of math to some extent because Texas A&M relies on getting twos. You can't trade twos for threes with Penn State, and I'm afraid that's what might happen. So I'm going to take Penn State and the points. Penn State plus two and a half, uh, maybe plus three and a half there if you can get it, but I'm seeing mostly plus two and a halfs right now. Uh, two more for you. Creighton minus four and a half against NC State. This one is, I really like Creighton. I've liked Creighton for a while. I think they're one of the better teams uh, in the big year. I know they're one of the better teams in the Big East. They're one of the one of the top four, certainly. They had a not great showing in the Big East tournament against Xavier, really just getting blown out by Xavier. But I like this team as a whole. I like their balance uh, with, you know, their big man, Kalkbrenner, is a guy I really like. But they, they have great they have great balance on this team. And then you look at NC State. NC State's a team that just does not play defense, that you cannot rely on to show up. Uh, that 80-54 to 54 loss to Clemson in the ACC tournament was just inexplicable. I don't trust NC State to stop anybody. 
much less a team as good as Creighton. So give me Creighton minus four and a half. And then my last pick is Utah State minus one and a half against Missouri. Again, another team where I'm just not going to, I'm, I just do not trust them defensively. And uh, that's kind of what it comes down to. Number 178 in defense. Compare that to a Utah team that over the over the last uh, couple weeks since February 1st, so a, a good sample size now since February 1st, a 12-game sample size for Utah State, they are 9-3, and three, ranked number 13th in the country per, ter- per Torvik. They are in the top 25, number 22 in terms of adjusted defensive efficiency. They're very good at defending the three. Uh, they shoot the three pretty well themselves. They're a team that I really like, uh, especially against a Missouri team who I cannot trust defensively. So I'm sure you're noticing a trend there. It's these teams that do not play defense that that I just don't feel like I can trust. Those are my best bets early on here. Um, I cannot wait to watch all these games. I can't wait to give you some more picks because, look, I think I gave you like seven. What do I got? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven picks. But we got a lot more to go because it's tournament time and I can't just be sitting back with seven picks there. We got brackets to fill out. We got Survivor to do. I'm going to be doing a fantasy draft. Uh, We got all sorts of things here and all sorts of additional picks, analysis, and opinions to share. However, this may be the last time that I'm able to come to you in podcast form before the tournament actually kicks off. So keep it locked to my Twitter account, at Gorgon Sports. If I can't come to you via podcast form, I'll be posting some of my additional thoughts, picks, analysis, opinions there. So stay tuned there on Twitter, at Gorgon Sports, where you can find uh, everything from me. If I don't come to you again before the tournament starts, I will definitely be coming to you next weekend to break down what we saw in the first and second round. Enjoy the games this week, everybody. It's the best time of the year. It's March Madness. Until next time, keep the grill hot and the cooler cold.